in the Bible verse um, at the beginning, which is Galatians 4, 7, it is, so you are no longer a slave, okay? And then, and I really looked for typos and I still miss them. On page 3, you will see uh, Romans 4, verse 5. Um, so you have um, not on the basis of their good works, it's not words. So those are, to me, very crucial um, typos. So I wanted to ask you to take a look at that. Um, what I would like to do today is... Um, I will, I will do this sort of a lecture format, but then um, I'd also like to have some interaction. Um, so I have some application questions, and maybe if that's okay with you, we will kind of uh, take a moment, uh, you know, after a certain uh, chunk of the teaching, and then um, maybe open up for some discussion on some of those application questions. So, okay, and if you have your Bibles. Uh, we will be in Galatians. I understand you're going through Galatians. That's the, okay. So from uh, verse 26 is what Sherry asked me to um, look at with you. Um, let me pray before we start. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we are privileged um, in this day and age to come freely to a Christian school. I come freely to study your word, um, freely read our Bibles, um, and freely be believers in Jesus Christ. And uh, so we do not take that for granted, Lord, because world, worldwide that is not always the case. So we are enormously privileged uh, to be able to have your word with us, your Holy Spirit-filled word. And we do ask, Father, that you would teach us uh, through this passage. And I ask, Father, that uh, I would only... Speak your words, uh, not mine, Lord, only your words. And uh, would you be in every heart in this room today, and would you change us, Father, through the scriptures. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll be going through this uh, little teaching, and then if you follow along on the outline, um, and I'll try to alert you if you're really kind of fastidious about those things, I'll let you know. <laughs> we're about to, you know, fill in a blank, but um, I wanted to start with a, um, just a little, uh, re re you know, recollection of a very famous parable from uh, Luke chapter 15. Uh, most people know it as the, the prodigal son or the return of the lost son, um, but it's a famous parable, and you are probably familiar with it, and uh, if you are uh, familiar with Henry Nouwen, who's a wonderful writer. <clears throat> he had an entire book on this parable um, because he was he became completely captivated by Rembrandt's painting, actually in the Hermitage of the Return of the Prodigal Son. Has anybody read that book? Return of the now, oh yeah, yeah, good. It's a great book. Um, but he became very captivated by that um, that painting, especially in light of this parable. Um, at, at one point in his life. And the Hermitage is in St. Petersburg, Russia. So that's a great um, uh, book to look at sometime. But in this parable, uh, Jesus introduced a man who had two sons, and his younger son one day asked his father to give him his portion of his estate um, that he owned by his father in advance of his father's passing. So that's a very kind of disrespectful thing. If you think about it, I'd rather you be dead and have my money than really be with you and wait for you to pass. But that's essentially what he did. And uh, his father agreed to do so. And the younger son left home. And then if you look at Luke 15, it says, for a distant country. In other words, he went far away from home. Um, and then he squandered his early inheritance on, you know, and that the text says wild living. He spent his entire inheritance in a reckless manner with no restraint whatsoever. And then ultimately, he spent that entire uh, inheritance, so he was uh, penniless. There happened to be a severe famine in the entire country, and then this younger son ended up being destitute. And he sought out, it said, a citizen in that distant, distant country and forced himself, it says, literally forced him, this is in the NIV translation, upon that field owner who eventually hired him to feed his pigs. 
they became a pig, somebody tended hogs or pigs. He became so desperately hungry, um, Luke points out to us that he would rather have gladly fed on the carob pods that the pigs were eating than you know, remain hungry. He was in that bad a shape because nobody was really giving him anything to eat. So he's literally starving to death and it occurred to him, well, my dad's still pretty wealthy, has a lot of food, and his servants do pretty well. I think I'm just going to go back and ask for forgiveness and see if I can just get hired so I can eat. So he, he gets up from, from his job tending those hogs and, and returns home. He determined to go back to his father. And so it's a beautiful account. You see, it says that you know, even from a long distance, his father saw him and was filled with compassion when he saw his son. He ran out to his son. He threw his arms around him, and it says that he kissed him. Which is just so beautiful. Um, and a number of Bible scholars actually note how very inappropriate the behavior of this father was. One was to run. A man of that stature would not will be found running anywhere and very likely he would have exposed his legs. So this was a very inappropriate uh, behavior on the part of this dad. But he uh, obviously doesn't care about that because he's so happy to see his son. And in fact, he ran to him. And the son said to him, uh, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, he says. And so as the parable goes, his father arranged for a, a tremendous feast and a celebration over the return of this long-lost son. <clears throat> and it, uh, if you know this parable, and I bet many of you do, um, it, it actually goes on to talk a little bit more. There's a narrative about his older brother, and I'm not even going to talk about that right now, but I just want to you know, stop right there in that parable as we begin our study on Galatians um, just to give us, give us a little bit of insight into the status of a son as this parable has illustrated for us. So um, our passage today um, takes us into Paul's discussion about who, is God, who are God's children and then the awesome privileges of being um, a child of God. Um, did, do you know who picked the, the worship songs? No, it's gender. Oh, she did. I wonder if she it knew was the. So perfect. I know. No, I, I was singing that all morning. I thought, oh my gosh. I'm, I'm maybe she read the passage. I don't know, but that was just completely uh, appropriate in my head. So I'd like to go first. Um, what I'll do is, uh, we're going to break this out into three sections. I'll start with verses 26 to 29 in um, Galatians, and it says, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Uh, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay. So what I'll do is at the beginning of that little section, I'd like to just give you a factual synopsis so that we know what happened there. I'm going to cut to the chase for us with that, just a little bit of a, a um, uh, summary. So God's children are heirs, and that's what uh, Paul was teaching the Galatians. God's children are heirs and are baptized in Jesus Christ without exception. Okay? They're God's children are heirs and they're baptized in Jesus Christ without exception. Um, as we begin, it may seem an obvious point, but maybe it is not. But according to the Bible, God's children, legal, legal and spiritual children, are only so through Jesus Christ. Okay, So as children of God, we are in fact adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. Okay, So through Jesus, we literally become adopted children of God through Jesus Christ. In Roman cultural, culture, contrary to our current culture, uh, where more often we find people who adopt or foster young children or infants um, in order to raise them as their own, but adoption in, in this Roman culture at the time was more typically to find an heir. So you might have a wealthy family, a wealthy uh, man who did not have sons, who were the only ones that were inheriting money, um, needed to find an estate 
uh, uh, somebody, uh, an heir to whom he could bequeath his estate. And uh, so often, strangely enough, they would adopt adult male children. <laughs> this seems so strange, but they would adult, uh, adopt adults in order to uh, give this inheritance and leave this legacy of the family. Um, Roman aristocrats and, and patricians, um, you know, they, they were also concerned about their reputation and would look for you know, an upstanding young Roman uh, man who was eligible for adoption, and he was not necessarily orphaned either, um, which is very different. So we, while we do this differently, um, in that culture, definitely males were the only ones that are adopted, okay? And so it's also important to note that Paul, who was a Pharisee, um, would likely be the type that would have frequently prayed, um, thank God I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Um, and the Pharisees were these highly edu educated religious leaders. Paul was extremely educated. He was a legal scholar. But he probably would have said something very typical, thank God I'm not a Gentile, thank God I'm not a slave, thank God I'm not a woman. Okay. So all this to say that it was a very radical concept for a Paul to say that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female in light of that. Okay, So women um, having equal access to God's love and protection as well as a share in the spiritual inheritance were radical concepts. Okay, So women having equal access to God's love and protection as well as a share in the spiritual inheritance were radical concepts. So it's very, very strange for Paul to make this kind of big statement. Uh, a child of God can be anyone regardless of the person's identity, however, in Jesus Christ alone. So it doesn't matter whether what country you come from, what socioeconomic bracket you come from, whether you're educated or not, or male or female, does not matter criminal background, no criminal background, does not matter. But in Christ, we become God's children. And uh, also, by the way, um, you become, you're considered a spiritual descendant of Abraham. So I'd like to give you that first truth, uh, something you can think about. Uh, through Jesus Christ, we are adopted into God's family to become his children uh, with all legal and spiritual privileges as his heir. Okay, so through Jesus Christ we are adopted into God's family to become his children with all legal and spiritual privileges as his heir. <clears throat> so as a child of God, we actually gain unconditional access and protection from God as our father and we inherit his, his wealth which in the Bible is his glory. And I know for us that probably sounds like, well, is, does that involve money? Does that involve, what does that involve? But it says, the Bible says his glory is what we will ultimately inherit one day. We gain the time and attention of our protective Heavenly Father forever. And that is no small provision. Huge. Our spiritual inheritance that we will possess completely one day is in fact guaranteed and, and what we're going to do is enjoy the endless degrees of his majesty, uh, pure bliss, perfection, wisdom, his greatness, true beauty, blessedness. And knowing we have all of this in Jesus Christ will change how we see our present circumstances. Um, if you look at Romans chapter 8, Verse 18, it says, I could, he, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So regardless of how incredibly hard our lives can be, and I, I'm quite sure that many of us in this room have suffered um, inordinately in our lifetime and maybe even right now, but God is promising that that suffering is not going to compare, not merely to this glory that we're going to experience one day um, with him. Um, again, that you know, pure bliss, it, it, endless degrees of his majesty, his pure bliss, that perfection of God, all his wisdom, all his greatness, everything beautiful about God, all his blessedness will be 
hours one day to experience. So I'm going to take this opportunity to open it up a little bit to you and ask, you know, perhaps how does knowing that you are a child of God change your perspective on your current struggles and your present suffering? So does anybody want to just share maybe, you know, if you have if seeing yourself differently this morning, understanding as a Christian and in Jesus Christ that you are actually God's child, how that might change maybe some things that you're going through? We don't, won't do this for a long time, but I'd love to give you an opportunity to share if you'd like. <laughs> Being shy? <laughs> yes? I would just say that my faith helped me not to, not, not to worry about things I can't change. Yes. Yeah. That's so important, right? I and mean, some things we won't be you able just to change. Give it to God because yeah. you, it's out of your hands. Right, right. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think for me, it just gives me hope yeah. that a, a good outcome might be possible. Yeah. Um, and if not now, knowing that he'll be with me in whatever suffering. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you. And how about this? What benefit is it, is God's child do you yearn to experience tangibly? Is there something you yearn to experience as God's child? Yes. I'm a worrier naturally. Yes. And we're having a Bible study at my church, and in the book of um, anyway, Joshua, and. Um, We've, I've learned two new words, a warrior and a worrier. So every day now I say, I am a warrior, not a worrier. And it really, and they say you should wear a bracelet to remember, oh. to remember this. It's really something I really need right now. It's great. It's peace, yeah. That's yeah, very good. And then, um, you know, so I will also just, you know, leave these for you to consider, you know, uh, privately too, because some of these are very personal. But, you know, just a question about if you actually pray to him, um, and then, you know, how will you know that um, you are God's, how will knowing that you are God's child actually change your prayer life? Maybe how often and how you pray. Because this was a real transforming um, you know, quote-unquote discipline for me, it turns out it's really ground zero of your faith is how you interact with God one-on-one. So I just leave that challenge with you as well. And um, we'll move on then to verses 1 through 3. Um, you have there, what am I saying? And what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. We'll flesh that out. Some that's a little tough. So let me just give you a factual. You know what he taught here is though an heir, God's children were subject to the world's spiritual forces. Okay. So though an heir, God's children were subject to the world's spiritual forces, and again, we're going to flesh out that, what that means. <clears throat> Paul goes on to describe in more detail what an heir is, um, and when an heir is <coughs> underage, um, he is no different from a slave. That's what he said. Okay, so um, when an heir, and so he's talking about an heir of a wealthy person, for example, um, when he's underage, he's actually no different from a slave. Um, and Paul says that the underage heir functions like a slave in that they are actually subject to the will and the whim of others, despite owning the whole estate maybe one day, right? So their tutors, their guardians, their nannies, whoever it might be, other people are telling an underage heir what to do, which is what happens with the slave, okay? So... Um, he would be, while underage, this heir is probably subject to trustees, to tutors, to guardians. And like a slave, the underage heir has no control over his own life, but is subject to decisions made on, uh, for, on behalf of him by somebody else. Could be his parent, 
could be the, the tutor or guardian, right? So therefore, this is a kind of functional slavery, um, and then this is a form of bondage. And then if you, did you study the, the verses earlier, just before last, last time you met? Okay, because you're, you're, the verses before this passage talk about um, we, are, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. So you recall this probably, um, this theme of bondage Paul had already brought up. But now he's kind of trying to flesh this out a little bit more, that the person before they are saved is like that underage heir, okay? Meaning you have no idea really what it is to own that whole estate, um, and other people are telling you what to do. So he, he, he describes our subjection to something significantly different from earthly guardians and trustees, nannies and tutors. That's not what he's talking about in this case because he says, he talks about the spiritual, um, the elemental spiritual forces of the world. He describes our submission is, as that which is subject to the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Okay, and those verses are, those words are right from the verse. So here, Paul was not describing um, elements of the natural world like wind and fire or water. That's not what he's talking about. He's referring to the rules of Jewish ritual. Um, this was uh, very elementary to uh, teaching of a system of a lot of external observations and reg regulations. Um, you know, Jewish people at this time followed an enormous number of rules and regulations, and so he's referring to that. This is their uh, these spiritual, uh, elemental spiritual forces. And as you may know, religious people followed the many meticulous rules and regulations, sometimes under the penalty of death. And this made for very fearful and anxious people as they depended on themselves to make themselves right before God. Okay, So this made for fearful and anxious people as they depended on themselves to make themselves right uh, before God's eyes. <clears throat> and there was and is a tendency for people to be superstitious about rituals that make them feel cared for and protected for various reasons. So even irrational superstitions remain in our culture, giving us a false sense of security, and these might sound familiar to you. Knocking on wood, <laughs> or avoiding the number 13, um, or... Um, crossing your fingers and we're still doing this stuff and think about how strange that is and we think that that gives us some sort of protection <laughs> right? it's very strange but we still do that um, this is why Paul uses the comparison um, to a slave who is in bondage doing these things because we feel that we must do this to be safe and protected we still do that the kind of bondage we, we're still living that and if you look up the word bondage in the dictionary, it says that it is a state of being bound or subjected to some external power or control. For Christians, a type of slavery or bondage is found in our trying to do something or to be something to receive God's favor or to be in good standing with him. And we're still doing that, even when we're saved. And even when we know we belong to Jesus we're still doing that, many people, okay? Um, we are saved by God's mercy toward us and his unmerited favor or grace toward us. Jesus' death on the cross at Calvary and his resurrection from the dead has justified us before God. In other words, we have a right and legal standing before God based on Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. We have done nothing, we're adding nothing to this legal status of being what we call justified before God. We have the right to stand before God, protected, secure, loved, not because of anything that we have done. Not at all. Everything was done by Jesus. Everything. Right? But for that information to get down into your heart is not a small deal. 
there's a lot of there are a lot of layers of our poor you know thinking habits um, that that God is still working to eliminate from us, right? So, so we might uh, know this in our head, but many of us are still trying to and here we go mix our own good deeds in with Jesus's good deeds, thinking that this somehow makes us more secure or protected or in God's favor. We are trying to mix in our own good deeds and Jesus in with Jesus' good deeds, thinking that this is going to make us more secure or protected or in God's good, God's good favor. And if you mix your contribution with Jesus's, you are in bondage. It's not even a question. If you, if you think that I, I will have quiet time and God will love me more, you are in bondage. Okay, and that was a hard concept for me <laughs> to realize because I felt I needed to get up and, you know, and have quiet time for God to be pleased with me. It has nothing to do with how God sees you. Nothing. Zero. Instead, that time of prayer with Him is ground zero in the developing of your one-on-one relationship with Him. That's it. Because nothing changes as far as how He sees you based on whether you showed up for quiet time or not, whether you read your Bible or not. Um, It is possible that either you or I do not understand what it means to be justified or we think that justification, if you understand that big word, is just theoretical and perhaps doesn't even apply to me. But um, should we live in this bondage, actually the end result ultimately is you're going to be very unhappy and miserable. There is no other (laughs) alternative. If it's always up to you, you're going to be very miserable, I'll be very miserable, unhappy. And even if you think you're happy for a short time, you're still going to end up in that place because you are in bondage if we think that we're adding something to what Jesus has done for us, right? So at some point we're going to recognize that our efforts will nevertheless fall short. We will revert back to some bad behavior or thought pattern. I mean, how many of you have broken your New Year's resolution, for example? (laughs) I don't think I've ever kept one. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever kept one, right? So that, that's the way we are. We will never be able to hold some. I mean, I know there's some disciplined types, but, well, not me, okay? Maybe most people, right? Uh, so without the Lord, according to Paul, we are like slaves in some form of bondage. That's the bottom line. Without Jesus, we are like slaves in some form of bondage. And even God appears to us as one that has to be appeased. He seems distant and not in fact or in reality for us. And many Christians fall in that camp of thinking. You know it in your head, but you don't feel that. He's far away and he's not really for me. Okay? Which means that you didn't really believe or understand that you are justified in Jesus, or somehow you think that doesn't apply to you. Okay, that's a really serious condition that can be addressed. Okay, so the truth is, um, well, I'll just say this too, the result of this bondage is that we are under the weight of tremendous anxiety, stress, and guilt as a culture. Mm -hmm. It's, It's everybody under tremendous anxiety, Stress and guilt is a culture, and Christians should be the last to be in that condition, the last people in the world, right? So the truth is we live in miserable bondage if we are not saved by Jesus Christ or if we do not understand or believe that we are justified in Christ. That's on the bottom of page two. So we live in miserable bondage if we are not saved by Jesus Christ or if we do not understand or believe that we are justified in Christ. So going on to the next page of your outline, you have there, justification is a legal declaration of our righteousness before God. It's a legal declaration of our righteousness before God your rightness to stand before God. If you look at Romans 4, verse 5, it says, God declares the ungodly to be righteous in his sight, not on the basis 
of their good works, and thank you for correcting that typo. It wasn't words, it's works. Okay? But in response to their faith. So I want to ask you some, open it up for a little conversation if you'd like. Um, I'm going to go ahead to question two. You know, what in your life reveals that you struggle to believe that there is nothing you need to do, say, or be in your own strength or uh, power to be free in Jesus Christ? Is there something that reveals that in your own life? I know, I can share with you that I used to have just tremendous envy of Christians who would talk about the love of God. And I'd say, what does that feel like? <laughs> no idea. You know, and this is as a believer, not as an unbeliever. To really, it felt like if I talk about the love of God, it's hearsay, it's not about me. And that was a, for a long period of my life, really struggling with, um, just this envy about people talking about how much God loved them. And I was thinking, really? Really? What does that feel like? <laughs> right? I wonder, is there anything that you can think of that reveals maybe you're struggling with um, believing that really there's nothing that you need to do? So I encourage you I won't force you to be to. That is very personal. But I, I encourage you to write a short prayer when you have time, um, confessing that struggle to believe, um, and then ask him for help in that struggle. And I actually, that's what I did, because I was so sick and tired of hearing about somebody else really knows that God loves them. And I thought, I don't know that. I really don't know that, Lord. So I did confess that, and I prayed. Uh, Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. Um, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So that is not an easy little clip of verses, but I hope you will have a chance to read this passage again. Um, let me give you just a synopsis on that. God sent his son to redeem his children and give his spirit of sonship. Okay, so God sent his son to redeem his children and give his spirit of sonship. So if you saw there, the, the beginning of that little section from verse 4 begins with the word, but. Right? You see that, but. Okay? So really sort of stopping us in our track, but. Okay? Um, we are in bondage, right? Subject to the elemental, elemental the, the verses, the spiritual forces of the world, but, is what he said. And here we are given the, the gospel, the wonderful gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. But. It says, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Okay, so that's the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay, and in spite of this miserable condition of bondage for all humanity, okay, God sent, one, his son to redeem us, and then two, allow us to receive adoption to sonship. Okay? So in spite of this miserable condition of bondage for all humanity, God has sent his son, number one, to redeem us, and then number two, to allow us to receive adoption to sonship. And what I found studying the Bible was there, many, there were many vocabulary words that were kind of baffling to me, and maybe... You are familiar, but I'm going to walk through some of them because they are important. 
um, because it will also change your perspective on what these ver verses actually say with a little deeper understanding. But one thing I wanted to say is adoption to sonship will actually describe God's, God's act of making us members of his family. Okay, So God is adopting us so that we can be in his family. Okay, so redemption there described, and you have that in B, um, Christ's saving work of buying back sinners out of their bondage to sin and to Satan through the payment of a ransom. That's what redemption actually means. Buying, uh, Christ's saving work of buying us back as sinners out of the bondage, uh, their bondage to sin and bondage to Satan through the payment of a ransom. Okay. So imagine yourself in threadbare clothing, barefoot, with your hands and feet chained and in stocks, standing on an auction block. Okay, can you see yourself that way? You didn't get to do your makeup. Or <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> but many are bidding loudly for you to be their slave. There are many are bidding for you to be their slave. But the Lord Jesus Christ steps up to pay the price to redeem you. In other words, he paid the price to secure your freedom from slavery. Okay, that's the gospel. That's what Jesus has done for us. We don't always recognize that we are that slave on the auction block that somebody is trying to buy. But instead, Jesus steps up and he paid that price. He redeemed you. He bought you for himself to free you from that slavery, from that condition. So how did he do that? Well, he suffered the penalty and became sin on the cross to bear the curse of sin. He died in your place and he died in mine on the cross. For each one of us. Redemption describes Christ's saving work of buying back sinners out of their bondage to sin and to Satan through the payment of a ransom. Okay, so Mark uh, 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, that's why he came, to be that ransom, to be the price to pay, to buy you from that auction block, that you would not be a slave. Okay, by doing so, we are no, no longer under the curse of following the law or rules or standards because Jesus followed the law perfectly for us and he lived a perfect life for us. And because we are redeemed, we now have a wide open door to God in a loving relationship and all of heaven and heaven's glory is opened wide to us. You think of Jesus as that doorway. He just opened it up. We have access to God, we have access to heaven, we have access to everything about God, knowing God, relationship with Him, every heavenly blessing you can possibly imagine has been opened up through that door of Jesus Christ. Okay? So what does it mean to be free? To be free is to be set free from performing for your self-worth, because that's what a slave does. She does. She works to make herself worthwhile because she has to. She has to do that if you're a slave. But the person who is redeemed and set free from slavery as a result does not perform to make herself worthy because it is Jesus' perfect life that makes her worthy. Not yours. If you don't have it, I don't have it. Not for, not for a day. We don't have it. But Jesus' perfect life lived 24-7, those 33 years on earth, becomes the life that is imputed to you. In other words, when God sees you, he sees the perfect life of, life of Jesus Christ in your bank account. Okay. The way another scholar describes being free in Christ is, and I love this, you do what you are built to do. The thing you so desperately and uh, desire and delight to do. That's real freedom. You do what you're really made to do in Christ. Okay? And I, I, I love, you know, I'd heard teachers in the past talk about, you know, you, you really grow in Christ. You, you come to that fulfillment of your personality, real fulfillment of your personality. I think, I think about our children who are struggling with, you know, you know, the range of, 
of dysfunctions, right? And they don't really believe that they are good enough or whatever. And they imagine that Jesus is ready just to give that fulfillment of their personality, to do what they're built to do, right? Everything they desperately desire and delight to do, he's ready to give that. That's freedom in Jesus Christ, okay? And a lot of them think it's, they're going to be confined and prisoners <laughs> and not free. But it's completely the opposite. That we are free to live for God and not put in the position to owe it to God to live for Him. We don't owe Him. We, well, we owe Him our life, but it's not going to matter. Jesus paid for that. Okay? And because Jesus satisfied our debt to God, um, as a result, we are actually reconciled to God and we are saved. Okay, so adoption to sonship. Um, and that, that verse there you saw because, and that's 6 and 7, because you are his sons or daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So through uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in my place and in your place, we also gain this privilege, uh, tremendous privilege and joy of adoption to what um, Paul called sonship. We are able to interact with and relate to God as our good and our loving Father. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, I am no longer a slave, as we sang, but a child of God. That Maybe that song is going to take on different meaning after this passage, right? Um, but even for somebody who has been saved and knows in their head this new status as a, of a child of God, many Christians do not live as if they really are God's children. And I'm one of them that did that for many years. Not really. I mean, I could say it in my head, but I did not feel that. Did not feel that. Um, and in that case, that kind of Christian, like myself, has not experienced the work of the spirit of adoption or what the NIV describes in verse 6, the spirit of his son, okay, the spirit of Jesus Christ. So at the beginning of our lesson, we read about the parable of the lost son. And in that account, when the younger son returns to his father, he very simply said, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's all he said. Okay? He doesn't say he said, Daddy. Nothing. Just said, I sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He did not feel like his dad's son. And though he clearly was, and then we read uh, you know, in verse uh, 20, this is from Luke chapter 15, the father was filled with so much compassion for him. That's the fact. That's his son. That's really his dad. The son doesn't feel it. But this father was filled with compassion for him that he runs to him. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him. So there was no question that this benevolent uh, father's that he was the son, the, the son of this benevolent father, but he did not have that certainty in his heart, for sure. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Doesn't feel it. The son, younger son, did not experience this this true experience of sonship. Okay, I am really your son. So upon our salvation in Jesus Christ, we are uh, brought into God's family, and His Holy Spirit comes to live in our hearts forever. The Lord Jesus said that God gives us his Holy Spirit without limit. This is in John chapter 3, verse 34. And the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it's probably one of my favorite verses, God's love has been poured into our hearts, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay? So God knows the brokenness of humanity that even when we are saved, there's still so much of sin's damage in us that we might have this head knowledge about the facts of our salvation, but we do not feel it. We do not feel it. Okay? Our salvation really seems more, and there's in your outline, theoretical than personal to us. It's a theory. Our salvation seems more theoretical than it actually seems personal to us. So have you ever felt that you are only hearing stories about others' experience with God, but you do not know that feeling or the experience of knowing or being loved by God? 
And I, as I mentioned, I felt that very often in my walk with the Lord, many, many times, that great distance from God. But I also realize now, and so if you do feel that way or you have felt that way, I realize now that that experience of feeling uh, so far from God was actually such a gift to me, strange as that sound, because I actually recognized my need and a desire to know God personally. So I really felt sad about that part of me for so long, and I realized that ended up being a real gift because I knew I needed God, and I knew I really wanted Him, and I knew I really wanted to experience His love. So if you feel that, that's actually a gift. I really, I believe. Okay? And so many Christians uh, function without experiencing God. We don't enjoy the fellowship with Him in a personal love relationship. But God gave us His Holy Spirit to give us a personal and intimate, profound assurance, okay, that we are His child. Okay, He gave us His Holy Spirit so that we can have a very personal, intimate, profound assurance that we are His child. The experience of being loved, cherished, cared for, protected by our Heavenly Father, and then the experience of being the object of His great affection and attention. Okay, so that experience, not just knowing that, He he gave His Holy Spirit so we could actually experience that personally. And He sees us as the Father saw His lost Son. He sees us and He's filled with compassion. He, He runs to us, He throws His arms around us, and He kisses us, His child. Right? But many of us, even hearing that, don't even call him daddy. I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. It's really what is going on inside here. Okay? And Paul says we can even cry out from our heart, Abba, which is another way of saying daddy or papa to God. And, um, and actually, that was a kind of also turning point, I thought, in my own life as I started to pray, Abba, Father, because I, I thought, well, that's the privilege God has given me to call him Daddy. And my kids laugh when they hear me say, Abba, what are you, what are you doing? Just call him God or Heavenly Father. I said, no, it's Abba. But I, you know, that, that's a, it's a transforming moment too, I think. Um, so have you ever experienced God's love for you <clears throat> as his child and actually called out and cried out to him, Abba or Daddy? So we can do so because the Holy Spirit in us witnesses to our hearts the fact that we belong to God as his child and he is our daddy. Uh, Adoption, and that's point, uh, let me see. F, to sonship is different from regeneration. That's not the same thing. Regeneration is just becoming alive spiritually and it's different from justification which is to have the legal right to stand before God. Adoption has to do with our personal relationship with God as our Father. Regeneration, justification, adoption, all different vocabulary words, right? And so finally, what does it mean to be God's heir? As a member of God's family, I take on family likeness, which is to be like His Son, Jesus, and I will bear that family holiness through God's Holy Spirit reproducing in me that spirit of sonship. Okay, that's the Lord's work to produce that experience in you. And when you are an heir, you receive this unconditional access and protection as well as inherit the wealth, the unbelievable wealth of your parent, our Heavenly Father. And our our inheritance is heavenly glory that will be revealed in us um, and if you look at uh, Romans 8, verse 19, um, there's amazing, that's an amazing passage, but knowing of this heavenly glory that awaits us, Paul tells us that our present sufferings and our trials, our present sadness, all the tragedies, the disappointments, the aggravations, every dysfunction, all the mental and the physical illnesses will not ever, ever outweigh the heavenly glory that awaits us. In fact, one day those conditions will be completely reversed they will be completely reversed. And our healing is going to be ultimate. Body, our mind, and our spirit. Everything will be healed. And I like how one scholar says that one day when we inherit this heavenly glory, 
we are going to be completely infused and endowed with these unimaginable degrees of majesty, of bliss, perfection, that blessedness of God. Um, a tangible freedom that is so explosive, and if you look at uh, eight, Romans 8.21, it's actually going to impact nature. That's really crazy to think about that, is that when we inherit God's glory, it's, it's going to be so explosive, it's going to transform our surroundings. That's really explosive, very powerful. The last truth is in Christ, we not only become God's child and heir, but also experience tangibly the love of the Father in our hearts. So in Christ, we not only become God's child um, and heir, but also experience tangibly the love of the Father in our hearts. And I, I hope you would maybe consider some of those application questions um, when you have some time. Um, and I just conclude with this. Um, to be clothed in Jesus Christ upon our salvation, because we had that description from Paul in the earlier verses in Galatians, is so much more than just to be covered. It is to be redeemed. It's to be adopted and guaranteed an inheritance so massive and beyond the far reaches of our imagination. And we can, like our Lord Jesus, actually call upon our Father. And this was only because Jesus Christ on the cross had the very, that very privilege of calling God his Father taken from him. And this is what it means to be forsaken completely. And so all the prayers that Jesus had uttered previously he, to God, he addressed God as his Father. But on the cross, with that privilege taken from him, being totally forsaken, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. In other words, my God, my God, not my dad, my dad, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Mark chapter 15, verse 34. So would you remember that the Lord Jesus Christ willingly gave up his sonship on the cross, that you and I would become children of the Heavenly Father, and would you receive his open arms as he runs to you and kisses you? Okay, I'd like to close in prayer. Thank you, our Heavenly Father for opening this uh, powerful set of verses from Paul. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and the great mind you gave him that he could articulate these things for us, Father. And I pray that every truth that was uttered today, Lord, you would make real to every heart, especially the love of the Father for every woman here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.